players gather to cast powerful spells. Some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Chalice of the Void, Dreadhorde Arcanist, Force of Will, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common. To uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bashanra on YouTube, Thurban University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Good evening, folks. Welcome, welcome to episode 30 of the Eternal Glory podcast, If We Were Watsy. I'm Phil Gallagher, joined by Bryant Cook and Brian Coble. How are you all doing tonight? I am terrific, Phil. I'm just so excited about tonight's topic. It's going to be a great one. Well, you did figure out the topic and do most of the show notes, so that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah, Bryant has uh, some extra skin in the game in this one. If the episode's bad, blame him. If it's good, uh, give credit to myself and Phil for carrying it. So... <laughs> I'm I, I, I'm here putting one foot in front of the other, Phil. Uh, I know you're an educator as well, and oh, we're we're back to work, man. And it is weird, and it is tough. Yeah, I'll I'll talk about that in life updates. But uh, it's been a long week already, and it's it's Tuesday when we're recording this. Same. All right, um, as far as quick hits for the week go, starting off, thank you very much to Daniel Rude for supporting the podcast with your donation. Very much appreciated. As far as real life goes, um, let's let's get into the swing of it, I guess. Brian, how's work? Uh, well, um, I have made this uh, mental calculation, or I don't even know if it's a calculation, it's just a survival tactic of completely ignoring COVID-19 in all of my, like, uh, thoughts about what I need to do because if I thought about it I would not be able to do anything and I, it basically came down to uh, either quit or deal with it and I've decided to deal with it <laughs> so uh, all of my like uh, everything I'm wearing a mask every day and my hands are just raw from sanitization like all of that I'm doing all of that uh, we, we are taking precautions but uh, it, it, the kids are back. Uh, they are all over the place. They're touching everything. They're touching me. And <laughs> I, I'm hoping for the best. And that, that's all I can do, really. I'm hoping that my uh, low-risk population I live in of being a uh, healthy young person uh, carries the percentage and I don't just die. So that's where I am. Yeah, so I'm currently teaching full remote, but that is coming with its own struggles. So in the spring, grades basically didn't matter. If you wanted to, you could essentially say like, no, please take my grades as of the halfway point of the year, and you get reduced credit. So people are thinking that's that sort of thing is going to happen again, and this year is just not going to count. So of my 120 students or something like that, um, probably 40 to 50 didn't show up for live sessions today. So now I'm supposed to like call their parents for 40 or 50 kids 
Yikes. somehow in juggling all the other things that I'm trying to juggle. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm dealing with a little bit of that myself. Uh, we we gave our students and their families the option to do uh, digital learning or to show up. And a lot of the families opted into the digital virtual version, thinking that we were still in emergency shutdown, which we're not. Like, what happened in the spring where we could just hand wave, like nothing like this has happened, it is what it is, let's get through, is now, no, you're in school and you have to show up, you have to do the work in the virtual space. We are taking attendance, we are you know, reporting to the district, like all of those things are in place as if you were in school. And some some of my kids came back already. <laughs> They've been back in the building for one week and a number of them already bailed on virtual learning because the parents realized it was not a joke anymore. And others are just off the grid. Like we can't reach them. They're not showing up at school or in virtual sessions. And it's just like, okay. We have a police officer who is going to start going around and knocking on doors to find kids. It's like, that's part of the plan for exactly that reason. It's, uh, it's a little depressing. I mean, I'm happy to be remote teaching. 90% of it is going well, but I have a handful of kids who are just trying to do the assignments without actually showing up to class, and it's going about as well as you would think. <laughs> yep. Steep learning curve on that one. Uh, so this this is not a uh, tired educator <laughs> podcast, though I, 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 I'm out of the way with that, so... In good news, uh, I've been working on my deck all summer and last summer, too. Uh, I've mentioned it a few times. We got it painted as of the last episode, I think. There are now lights strung. I installed a, a sweet dimmer on all of the lights uh, that are now hung from my ceiling. And I bought all the materials to screen it in. So that's going to happen next weekend, I believe. My my parents screened in their deck a couple years ago with the same sort of system and they're going to come and provide labor and practiced hands to get it all up in a weekend so they have a visit planned for next weekend i'm pretty stoked for that and then we're just going to be a set of patio furniture away from a bomb ass outdoor space so super stoked uh normal grill talk uh that that's where the grill lives so i'll actually have like it'll be like i'm grilling in my living room which I it seems like it would be strictly better than grilling outdoors. So uh, I'm excited to live that life. You want to come? Uh, you want to come screen my deck after, since you'll be an expert. Uh, perhaps post quarantine. Uh, I've also been doing a little bit of home uh, improvements. We decided that we were going to get rid of this ugly dresser and instead remodel our closets and then paint the closets. It turned into painting our bedroom four different colors because even though my significant other agreed to a color several times, uh, it didn't quite stick until the fourth one. So I spent a lot of money on paint this week. Whoops. Other than that, uh, I watched Project Power on Netflix with Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, it was supposed to be released in theaters, but instead released to Netflix due to COVID. It wasn't the greatest movie ever, but there was definitely a point in which I was watching it where I just screamed, Fuck yes! Like, it was so awesome. Uh, not going to say anything else. It's not the greatest movie, like I said, but it's certainly worth watching for free. 
Yeah, I did not know that that was supposed to be in theaters, and I would have been pretty mad if I spent eight bucks on it. But it's a perfect Netflix movie. Yeah, definitely. How about you, Phil? What has your life been like? In my time, I've been playing Fire Emblem Three Houses, which is a great game, highly recommended if you are a Switch owner. It's uh, one of those games that has forking story paths, and the decisions you make actually have huge ramifications. And, I don't know. I don't remember exactly what my save file is at, but it's somewhere in, like, the 40 to 70 hour range for the first playthrough. I don't know exactly. But, like, I'm going to play through the game again because there's two other huge story paths that I can take and other subdivisions within them. So I'm totally hooked. It's like the choose-your-own-adventure book, but with waifus and such. It's, it's, it's good. That sounds great. Uh, one of my first, like, uh, present... I don't even know how to categorize like the generations of systems anymore, but like when things moved from like a cartridge to like a disc, basically, uh, original Xbox Fable was one of the first like big titles I played. And like you just the decisions you make, you collect like good or evil points and you become more good or more evil as you go through your story. And it affects like what powers you get and what bosses you fight. And that was an awesome experience. So I, I love that sort of game. Then the other thing that I've been doing is uh, I just finished watching Westworld. Uh, Spoiler-free version of my thoughts. The first season is a work of art. It is absolutely masterful and would highly, highly recommend it. The second season is an utter disappointment in comparison to the first. And the third season is maybe not as good as the first, but it's it very much redeems a lot of the the poopy things that happen in season two heavily agree it's hard to discuss it further because like westworld is like a show of spoilers like very very much so um but as a whole i have a a positive impression of the series even if i'm a i'm a little bitter about some things all right feedback time all right i'll cover the first one gack from Michael Clifford, a.k.a. Cliffy. It's a very insightful comment. We very much appreciate it. Um, and I, I I think I speak for the cast when I when I say that I, I agree with this sentiment. I know it's a little politically charged, but we're willing to deal with those difficult topics on this podcast. I'll take the second one, then. I love bad cards. Callum, Whitefaces, Smith. I, I too dabble in bad cards. I, I rather frequently play them. Uh, I'm going to be playing Kalitas on stream. Kalitas, however you want to say him, Kalitas for some of you, um, in a weird mono-black control deck this week. And I'm going to play it twice. The first time to see how bad the deck is. The second time to see if I can fix it. Should be fun. Do you ever sing Kalitas's name to the tune of Hotel California? Uh, Like, there, no? there's the... There's there's that line in Hotel California where it's like, and the smell of Kalitas rising up through the air. Well, like, obviously, I, I'm going to have to use that the only thing I ever think now. of. <laughs> like, the first time I read that word, I was like, is that what they're saying in that song? And it's just been in my head that way for 10 years or whatever. Man, the, uh, the R&D leaks are, are really bad. They've leaked through times to, what, the late 70s for the Eagles? Listen, the Eagles are the best-selling uh, music best-selling album in history is the eagles it's not michael jackson it's not the beatles it's the eagles so 
do what for, you want with that information, but I will real? not be shamed. Yes, for real. The Eagles' Greatest Hits is the best-selling album in history. I mean, I own it as well, so... Like, <laughs> See, there we go. Can't talk. Don't tell the big Lebowski. <laughs> also, while we're talking about him, happy birthday, Callum Whitefaces Smith. I believe his birthday was a day or two ago at the time of this recording. So, shout out, a year older. Another year of being a great legacy brewer. Well, I just want to say that was some great constructive feedback we received on the last episode and all of the effort that Phil put into those show notes. I'm glad that we got those terrific comments. Really brains my day. I like to think that people were so, like, thinking so hard about the level of content we provided last week that they just didn't go to Reddit. They were like, you know what? I'm going to let this simmer. I did get some good comments on it in, like, my... my videos while i was chatting and such with the stream so i i know at least some people enjoyed it nobody was mad we didn't get any haters so like that's that's considered a huge positive in the internet world right yeah well they're saving all that hate for this episode after what we have to say yeah that's probably true all right um i do want to add an addendum to the the last episode though so last episode i was really singing the praises of bug ninjas like i really liked the deck and I went and I played a league with it, and now my opinion has totally changed. I think the mana base for that deck is atrocious, and I'm really disappointed in myself that I didn't notice that before I started the league. Turns out that trying to play four basic lands while also trying to splash for cards that you want to play early in the game, uh, such as Abrupt Decay and Oko, kind of makes it a little bit sketchy. And I actually mulliganed somewhere on the order of 10 times in one league, maybe more. Um, it, was, it, was, it was brutal. I rarely had an opening hand that I could keep because my colors of mana were off or I didn't have enough lands or something was wrong with the, the lands. So someone in chat suggested that I should just try playing blue-black ninjas. And instead of playing Abrupt Decays and Oko, I should just try four Eliminate instead. And I thought that was a really cool idea. So going off of bad mana bases, I've personally never played the deck, but I've talked with people that have. The Esper Vile deck, I've been told that one of the easiest ways of beating that deck is to make sure their Aether Vile doesn't stay on the table and then Wasteland them once. And that will shut off either all of their black cards or a good portion of their white cards since the deck sometimes needs double white. Uh, like I said, I've never played this deck before, but I have started to think about this a little bit when facing it, and I've definitely abrupt decayed an Aether Vial when they missed their second land drop, and it bought me several turns. I have played that deck, and I will never play it again, because I think the mana base is really and truly that bad. Like, it is horrifyingly bad, and I see lots of pilots whom I respect, like, really saying that they adore this deck, and I just watch it lose to itself all of the time over mana. Um, like, Death and Taxes has bad enough mana, even though it's a mono-white deck, and Esper Vile is trying to be, like, an, a mana-intensive three-color deck that's trying to do the same. I think on fewer lands as well. Um, it's... Ugh. Yeah, you can't ball to Aether Vile. Like, it's not Bazaar of Baghdad. Like that that's not a a plan. So that yeah, that does seem like a big flaw in a deck. But I mean if if smart people want to keep working on it, good for them. But I probably won't touch that deck. 
Also, the prohibitive cost of Gilded Drake is a huge kick in the butt. Well, this isn't a mana base episode, although we might have one of those coming soon from Phil. Uh, going back to the magic updates, I did top eight a legacy challenge, and the videos are on YouTube. I talked about it a little bit last week on their episode of Leaving a Legacy, where I was a guest. Uh, received a lovely message today on Twitter that I retweeted from the podcast account saying that they had never heard of the Eternal Glory podcast. Welcome. And uh, they're going to start listening because I was on that episode. So that's pretty cool. Uplift the community, folks. There's no room for haters. Pod- Legacy podcasts can help each other. Rising tide lifts all ships, etc. Yeah. Love and it. Love just it. as a general content creator comment, if you do any sort of content, one of the best things you can do to make your content better is start working with other people. Um, maybe once a month or so, I do a piece of cooperative content with someone. I invite someone onto the stream. I'd be a guest on someone else's stream. I guess on a podcast or something like that. And it very much helps to grow your your brand and also makes connections that are really useful for you. Because if you don't know how a matchup works, but you know someone who does, you'll be comfortable messaging them and saying like, hey... Uh, what do you think of the Rug Delver versus Lands matchup? I've heard this, but I'm actually experiencing this. Can you chime in? Like, growing growing your community is always something that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Other than that, I was practicing pretty heavily for the Vintage Showcase that I qualified for. I was expecting a metagame that had a lot of Doomsday in it and other blue combo, and that's just not what I faced. I faced a lot of, like, Shops decks and then Oath, and Oath is one of PO's worst matchups. Because they just play so many counter spells, it was pretty difficult. That and like Lavinia is not good against them. There's two of those main deck. Your win condition is a creature that's actually pretty miserable against Oath. So I just wasn't really set up for what my matchups ended up being, and I missed top eight on Breaker. So that was a little unfortunate. Do you think you picked a, a bad build or anything for the weekend? Like, did you do you think you just didn't prepare for the metagame properly because it was this premiere event, or do you have any thoughts on like? What happened? Well, the winner of the event was Justin Gennari. Congratulations to Justin. And Justin was running an Esper version of PO with only one main deck, Lavinia. I don't know if Justin phased Oath like I did. Uh, But Justin ran a similar main deck to me where there was no main deck Hercule. So I think Justin just had slightly better matchups in a couple places because, like, Justin didn't get the Shops pairings that I did. And, like, it's not like Shops is a bad matchup, but... We both weren't running a main deck Hercules, which influences that. And I don't know, like sometimes things just don't go your way. Uh, my list, I played an extra Flusterstorm main just because like out of the 21 qualified players, six of them were expected to be on Doomsday. So I played a second Flusterstorm and I never once faced Doomsday, for example. So sometimes you just don't hit your pairings. I'm really interested that uh, Oath is a perceived bad matchup. Like normally I'm pumping the fist when I'm playing any combo deck against Oath. Because they're just a they're a worse combo deck than you, and frequently a worse control deck too. So uh, that's that that's an interesting thing to hear. But I can see how it would line up poorly. But did you have you faced it since the introduction of uh, Veil of Summer? Because like it became a lot harder when like you're boarding in Pyroblast and they have four Veil of Summer plus like their own Fluster Storms and stuff. Uh, I'm not gonna lie, I don't have my my sideboard plan memorized, but like in general. If you just, if they just don't trigger Oath, you're gonna win eventually, and like that—that's how I play the matchup. Like if you sculpt uh, like 
unbeatable combo hand and just never put a creature into play fight over the oath fight over nothing else like I, I feel like that usually gets the job done or you can just dunk on them like they they if like their their nut draw is like land mocks or orchard mocks oath and that's like three of the possible cards in there if they kept seven so they have like four cards left to have a counter spell and if like force blue card I, I don't know i just feel like just shoving against oath usually gets the job done <laughs> And like they have to pitch their their cantrip or whatever that they would want to use to find oath if they force you. I, I don't know. <laughs> Welcome to the vintage matchup analysis episode of our <laughs> cast. <laughs> we can move on from that, but uh, yeah, I, I I generally love getting paired against oath when I'm a combo deck of any variety. All right, since you're already talking, why don't you go over your MTG <laughs> updates? All right, so uh, I logged into magic online one time since our last episode and it was only to build the the sweet uh replenish shark nato deck i don't know if you guys have seen this but it plays a bunch of dope enchantments with cycling like lay claim and uh uh shark tornado what's the card actually called shark typhoon and so it, it's just drawing cards generating sharks and then it just also has four replenish in it so at some point you just resolve this four mana spell and then all your shark typhoons are in play, and every brainstorm generates four one one flyers, and the next replenish generates four 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 flyers. It's really sweet in theory, and uh, that's going to be my next YouTube video. I, I just need to find a couple hours to record it, but I haven't actually played it yet. I've been, uh, like I said, busy burning out, getting back into the work swing, and I've been unwinding at night by playing Amonkhet drafts on Arena. They they did Amonkhet remastered, so it's like the perfectly hybridized draft format uh, between Amonkhet and Hour of Dem- Devastation. Uh, like if you if you don't draft much, uh, Amonkhet Hour of Devastation was one of the best draft formats uh, of all time. Like probably top ten. It's tremendously skill testing, uh, a lot of great viable strategies, uh, and. They've distilled the two set draft into one set, and it, it's a lot of fun. I'm I'm gonna make Mythic Limited for the first time this month, and it's because I just I'm not burning out. Like normally, I I do like ten drafts or something of of the core set, and I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. But this, I'm just like, yep, can't wait. I, I'm trying to decide if I can get one in after we record tonight before I should go to bed. I think the answer is no, but the fact that I'm even trying should say something about this draft format. I'm doing similar things with Monster Train. They just unleashed the beta today for the new patch. So I'm like, ooh, I want to test this and make videos about it. It's like, no, I need to sleep. But I guarantee I'm playing at least one run after this is over. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. Hearthstone also just released a new set. so I And Priest is playable again. And my interest in Hearthstone is directly correlated to how playable Priest is in Constructed. So I've been playing a lot more Hearthstone than I have in a long time. All right. So today's uh, topic is if we are Wizards of the Coast and we're trying to look at each section from the eyes of Wizards of the Coast. So not necessarily our own opinions, but if you are someone in charge over at the ban list or anything like that, like that's the sort of lens we're trying to approach here. So the first section is is Rugdalver an issue, and should there be anything done about Rugdalver? 
So when you're approaching these sorts of things, it's important to keep in mind that there always has to be a best deck in any given format. Sometimes the best deck isn't that much better than the next best deck. Sometimes there is a relatively large gap, but things are still kind of competitive. So the question you really need to ask is like, at what point does that best deck actually become problematic? And like, how do you quantify that and look at it? So sometimes it's like if there's too much of a metagame percentage or the win rate's too high, those are often like things that Wizards of the Coast might look at to determine if the best deck is actually too good. So um, I don't know real numbers here, but I know in standard, the Wilderness Reclamation decks were just like absolutely dominating in terms of metagame percentage. Um, so that's a very recent example where action was taken because this strategy was just like subsuming the format. Another recent example is in Pioneer. And I think that this is actually a pretty good comparison. In Pioneer, the inverter deck was the enforcer of the format because it played Thoughtseize and Counterspells and Narset. And it kept a lot of the unfair stuff in check. But at the end of the day, it was determined that inverter was too good to be left in Pioneer. Partially because the interest in the format hit an all-time low because of Inverter was so good at being the enforcer. People felt like they couldn't do other strategies. So that was part of the reason that it ended up getting a nerf with the ban of Inverter of Truths. I believe that's the full name, right? Yeah, Inverter of Truths. And uh, like on that point, like I'm, I'm as spiky as they come. Like If there's a best deck and it has a reasonable mirror, I'm usually pretty interested in that, especially if it's a combo control deck. And even I wasn't playing Pioneer, not for months. Like, uh, the last Pioneer League I played Inverter in, I played against four Inverter Mirrors, and I just beat some other random deck someone brought because uh, everything else was not good enough. And I was like, okay, this is not fun. Like, I 4 won the league, I, I did well, and I was just like, yeah, with if I'm going to spend two hours doing anything, it's not going to be this. Yeah, and when you look at Legacy, Delver decks are often seen as the enforcer. They're the decks that keep combo decks in check. They keep a lot of the unfun, unfair stuff in check. And I guess the question we're asking is, is, is Rug Delver becoming too good? I know that the last Legacy Challenge, B-New went 10-0 playing Rug Delver. Um, yeah, and it's won the previous couple challenges before that as well, so it's not like it's a one-time wins this, is this deck too good? I mean, it's Rugdolver's had a history of being too good in the last year or so. Yeah, we've been bumping against this wall the last couple episodes where we start to drift onto a tangent and then uh, we we have to bite it off to stay on topic. So we decided to just make it the topic tonight. Like, we're, we're going to smash through the wall and actually have this conversation. Going back to a past example, going back to the metagame percentage thing, is if we look back at Top Miracles, which is, in my mind, it's like the big divider between the current ban philosophy in the former band philosophy, where Top Miracles kind of set a precedent where, like, they were actually... Because up until Top Miracles, I had it in my mind, like, like Wizards doesn't ban things unless they have to. And because, like, the previous banning before Top was... Mystical, Mystical Tutor. Like, it was, like, several years beforehand. Or no, uh, were Digging Crews before Top? No. Yeah. No, uh... Terminus was in... Oh, you mean the bands? Did they yeah. happen? Yes, yes. The, those okay. bands happened before Top. Yeah, sorry. I, those cards were so degenerate. Sometimes like my mind just slips on them because they were obviously busted to the point where they had to be banned. Uh, 
But in my mind, like, those cards, they kind of don't fit the theme, but Mystical Tutor, in my mind, like, that was the last band based on just, like, they had to do something, but I guess the two Delta spells were also a part of that. And if you look at Top Death Rite, those were, like, those were health-based reasons and not degenerate-based reasons. So when when Miracles finally got top banned, it was at 18% of the metagame. And when you look at uh, MTG Goldfish now, Rugdelver only, I say that with air quotes, has a 13% on Goldfish. But the way that it worked back then is sites didn't curate, or wizards didn't curate the data that we saw. So you actually got a real metagame percentage. So we knew that Miracles was 18 Wizards is not letting us see that there's 13. We don't actually have a real percentage. So all the percentages we say in this episode, there's like somewhat of an asterisk on there because it's what we're allowed to see. Um, also really interesting. When something is like at 18 or 20% of a legacy metagame, that is a dominating number. Whereas in standard or another smaller format, the the amount a deck is able to comprise within a format is is much higher. So while something like 20% would just be a relatively common standard deck, if something is 20% in Legacy when the card pool is absolutely massive and you have like so many different choices of strategy, that's really telling. Yeah, like 20% in a Legacy metagame, if there was a, every Star City like two-day legacy event or a grand prix ever again r.i.p but you could expect to play that deck four times on your way to the finals and like that's and that that's assuming all things equal that's not even assuming like winners metagame as the swiss rounds filter towards the top so just at full random and and that's a lot in a format that includes all magic cards that exist and going back to the other metric we talked about, which was win rate, Wizards of the Coast in the past has cited a 55 match win percentage rate for both Renin 6 and Deathrite Shaman. They did not reveal any information regarding Breach or Lurus. I'm guessing it's because those win rates were so through the roof that they didn't want to show them. Uh, but who knows? Like, But we do know that a 55% against the field is the number in which Wizards decides to step in. Yeah, that, that number was also cited for Survival of the Fittest. It was floating around like 60% against the field. So we, we've seen those numbers po- posted before, even going back a few years to like the Survival and Mystical Tutor ban era. Um, just to say a note on data here. Remember that this is like 55% for like all pilots lumped together. Like... You can have a 70% win rate with your version of that deck, and that's totally fine. But when all the players playing that deck, all aggregated together, are north of 55%, then that's where it starts to get problematic. Yeah, so I might have a reasonably high win percentage playing the Epic Storm, but I'm sure that for every one of me, there's a few players that have a 40 match win percentage, for example, like Phil said, and... That number needs to average out. And if a deck like Rugdelver is carrying players that might not be so good above 55%, it's pretty clear that the deck might just be broken. So, um, so this is sort of a philosophical question, so like, there's not really a correct answer here. But in terms of banning, another thing that's important to think about is the gameplay experience. And as of right now, Wizards doesn't really take many actions 
to improve gameplay experience. This is not always true. Uh, so for example, some of the pieces of Modern Eggs did end up getting banned because that deck was just like utterly miserable to play against. Because you never knew if you were dead like, it could literally take your opponent 10 minutes to combo off in some cases while you sat there and, like, literally did nothing. I know there was a famous judge call in which a player called a judge and said, Hey, my opponent's comboing off. I need to use the bathroom. Can you just, like, watch the match? And they just left. So, maybe gameplay experience is something that should be at least accounted for a little bit in terms of like bannings talk and such but that doesn't seem to be the wizard's focus most of the time right there's another layer to gameplay experience too which is mirror matches so uh if you think to the luris time like luris mirrors were phenomenal like if both players had luris those matchups were going to be great and the better player was going to win most of the time uh more recently uh teamer reclamation and standard had a phenomenal mirror if, like, 1 is Candyland and 10 is Chess, Team of Wreck was probably a solid 8. And, like, a, a strong player, like, a strong, spiky tournament player loves that. Uh, the Oko standard, that Pro Tour Oko, that was an incredibly skill-testing uh, format, incredibly skill-testing decks. Like, the Oko mirrors are pretty exciting if you're the one in the seat working through all that math like okay i have x elks i can produce x elks over time do i ever elk anything on their side because then they'll have an extra elk like all of that math is really good and the better player is going to win a lot of the time however magic the gathering succeeds where other tcgs doesn't because it's not like chess like if, if we think about chess it what is it other than a high skill mirror match where no other decks are viable like <laughs> that that's literally chess so i the closer Magic the Gathering gets to chess, uh, like if we're talking about Luris, Team Erek, uh, Oko Standard, those, it is a problem if you can't get creative. It is a problem for Magic the Gathering's health if players can't get creative, even if the dynamic between the best decks is healthy otherwise. Which I think is a lot of what Phil has been struggling with in the past couple months. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Another thing, as far as game design goes, on a slightly different thing, is that you have to manage formats so that it, it appeals to the players of those formats. So right now, we're probably very much giving an elite view on Legacy, right? Like, we probably play much more Legacy and are more entrenched in the Legacy community than the average player by quite a bit. But you also have to think... How is the experience of this format to the guy who shows up to his local game store in non-pandemic times once a week to play Legacy? Like, you want to make sure that both the highly competitive players and the more casual players have something to the format that appeals to them. Yeah, and I can imagine a lot of people, like, if you're if you're entrenched in modern but you've never played Legacy and you see Rug Delver in action, you might be like, wow, that's cool. Like dancing around those brainstorms figuring out where to push where to hold like when to hold up counter magic that is awesome but if you are from the the commander table and someone hands you just like a uh, maverick or something and you're just like i don't know they dazed all my shit and lightning bolted me and then i died <laughs> like that person's not coming back so th there's th like there certain personality types like 
formats need to appeal to those different types of players if they're going to bring in anyone new. All right, so let's uh, jump into our next topic, which is if Wizards of the Coast were to look at any possible cards, what would they be and why? Or why not? So the first card that we're going to talk about is Delver of Secrets. And keep in mind, all these percentages, like I mentioned previously, are all curated by what we're allowed to see. So Delver of Secrets is currently played in 18% of decks at four copies. So why should Wizards possibly look at this card? Well, it's a little bit out of the color pie. Uh, blue typically, at least in historically throughout Magic, does not get aggressive creatures. Delver of Secrets happens to be one of the most aggressive creatures ever printed for Legacy. Legacy is that sweet spot where instants and sorceries are the most commonly cards played, so it has a pretty high percentage of being likely to flip. And there's also the problem, and this is up to you if it's a problem or not, that the next best thing isn't really close, somewhat to Gristlebrand. Like, there's the top of the tier, and then the next card down is pretty far down to the point where you're like, why would I actually play that card? And I'm talking about cards like Nemo Mongoose, Hex Drinker, Monastery Swiss Spear, or even Terramander. All these cards, like, they actually require a little bit of work in order to make them effective. Where Delver Secrets, like, the work isn't really there. It kind of just does its thing, and then your opponent takes three. And... If you don't answer it, you lose the game. So that's like the start of why Wizards should look at Delver. Before we continue, would either of you like to say anything about that point? Yeah, so uh, I'll offer my my first counterpoint. Uh, I know that <laughs> we have... We have had this versions of this conversation for a we while. We do have a why not section coming up, just saying. I, I know, but like... Okay. Uh, I, I think this fits in here. So uh, Delver doesn't like just flip. Like the idea that it doesn't take any work to flip Delver is is kind of a oversimplification. The work is in deck build. Like Delver decks historically have like the way Delver Delver's fail rate is its creature gets answered, then it can't find another one. And why don't we just play more creatures? It's because we have to flip our Delver. Or, like, the mana base is a little fragile. We did that episode a few episodes back of how to beat Rugdelver, and, like, the mana base is fragile. Why don't we stick some more lands in there? Why don't we play basics? Because we need to flip Delver. So it, it's not free. Uh, it, it's it's not, like, a hex drinker amount of work, but it, it's certainly not free. That's my counterpoint. You can continue. Okay. I think Delver's a paragon of efficiency, right? Like... Deck building restraints aside, it's essentially a 3-2 flyer for one blue mana that can be protected by force of will, force of negation, days, and maybe even some other things if you're being a, a little bit spicy. As far as, like, efficiency goes, it really outclasses every other aggressive threat ever. Like, Goblin Guide is pretty hot, but, like, that only sees play in one legacy deck, and so many of the threats that I used to see in, like, the mid-2000 zoo-style decks are, are just gone, right? There, there's no wild nicodles, there's no curd apes, there, there's nothing else of that nature anymore. And I don't want to be the, the old man who says, Ah, I miss those things. Back in my day, we needed to control multiple types of lands in order to make our creatures better. Because, like, that has its own deck-building constraints. But yeah. the Delver shell, generally speaking, has resulted in 
well, not maybe resulted in, but five or six cards have gotten banned from Delver over the, the last few years. Cru Treasure Cruise, Deathrite Shaman, Gataxian Probe, Renin Six, and Luris of the Dream Den. Yeah, uh, we're going to get into all of that. I have more to say about that, but I don't want to just jam the whole podcast into the first section. But yes, uh, there... We, we've talked a little bit about how bad all the other aggressive threats are these days, and I, I, I don't believe that Delver just shoved them out because it's so much better. Uh, Delver was printed in the same set as Snapcaster Mage, like Bolt Snap Bolt, Plow Snap Plow was a huge hit to aggro decks. And then in the same block, Terminus was printed, which is also a huge hit. Like, y you can't play <laughs> Zoo when Terminus is in the format. And... Uh, I agree Delver has the Grizzlebrand problem as far as aggressive threats go, but uh, it, it does not exist in a vacuum where people are only playing Delver because Delver exists. All right, so I have a point to add. Phil jumped the gun a little bit with the band stuff, but uh, god damn you, Phil. Uh, joking. So one of the things about Delver is that it's a blue threat. Unlike all of the other aggressive threats in Magic, Delver is blue. And Terramander is not exactly the fastest threat either. Like, Terramander is blue, and it's an option that you can play, but Terramander is not becoming a 5-5 till turn 4, maybe? And one of the things why it's so important that Delver is blue is that you can create different... Uh, I, I don't have a great word for this off the top of my head, but, like, uh, Jun, Nio, all those things, like, what are those called? Shards? Sh shards? Shards of Rolar. I should have known that. So... The different shards you can build around Delver, like there's Jeskai and Grixis and all these other ones, they all allow you to play blue. And there's no real cost to that because you want to be playing blue anyway. So at least if it, the premier threat was green, you'd be priced into blue-green X. Like back in the day with the threshold variants, that's how they were all built. You were either usually uh, Bant or you were Rug. And sometimes if you wanted to be spicy, you would play Bug, but there wasn't really a reason to do that. And then once Delver was printed, it opened up and you could be Jeskai and you could be Blue Red. And you basically got to pick and choose what you wanted out of your splash colors. And Delver just opened things up to the point, because it was so good at being aggressive, that you didn't have to rely on a secondary color for your creatures anymore. You Your secondary color was your removal. Sorry, Brian. Yeah, you really don't want to turn one Tropical Island, cast a 1-1 one, one Wild Nakadal, and then Daze. Like that. And then you have to fetch Plateau to attack for three on the next turn. I've seen that mana base. I've seen Blue Zoo in Legacy with days in it, and it's not good. Also, minor nitpick, Teemer and Jeskai are wedges. Grixis is a shard. Grixis and Bant are shard. The the way the the things from cons are called wedges in design philosophy, and the shards are shards. Thank so, you, Brian. Yep, since before the, the, they go to Reddit and lampoon us for that. <laughs> but we were about to get feedback, and you ruined it. Darn you for being so smart. Hey, Reddit users, you can thank me for fixing this before it went to air. That can be the feedback. Back to Phil's point about the bannings now. So yeah, in the Delver deck, there were some bannings that happened. Phil listed them. Cruise, Deathrite, Probe, Ren, Valeris. If we go back, there's only four cards up until Mystical Tutor that haven't been part of the Delver shell. And granted, like Gitaxian Probe and Deathrite and Valeris, they were part of other decks. But Delver was probably the reason that those cards got the axe. But the ones that weren't included with Delver are Top, which was Miracles, Dig, which was a variety of decks, including Omnitel. Including Breach Delver. Dig was a two-of in Grixis Delver also. Okay. Before we get lampooned for that, too. <laughs> uh, I mean, Dig, I mean, sure, it was in Delver. Uh, 
Breach was its own deck, and then Zerda. I don't even know if Zerda should be banned anymore, but that's not the point of this episode. Those four cards are really the only ones that weren't really a part of the Delver shell or being pushed by Delver to get banned. So Delver secrets where the Delver shell are a pretty big reason why cards routinely get banned in Legacy. And part of the reason we mentioned this is that, well, like Wizards has this design philosophy in which they don't want to be limited by a card printing future cards. Like survival was partially banned because they didn't want to have to think about every creature being printed in the future worrying about survival. Well, Delvers hit that point where they keep on printing cards and they keep on getting banned because the Delver shell is so powerful in Legacy. Yeah, so the if if we look at all the cards that were banned around Delver, uh, they almost all of them have one the same thing in common. So Treasure Cruise, Ren and Six, Luris, and Dig Through Time were pure card advantage, and Deathrite Shaman was virtual card advantage in that uh, it produced continuing effects it was a mana sink that progressed your game plan so like if you consider like black mana tap to be like drawing a shock then it's kind of a virtual card advantage it's it's like a one mana planeswalker was the joke back in the day gataxian probe was the only one that doesn't generate card advantage so it is the delver shell so sleek so smooth that it's just a uh card advantage engine away from being too good like, is that where we are? And is any two, one, two, or three mana card advantage option going to just break Delver again in the future? Like, uh, I, I'm not going to get into them, but Dreadhorde, Arcanist, and Oko are in that slot now. Those are uh, two and three mana effects that generate continuous card advantage. And that's occupying that Ren and Six spot, the Deathrite Chaman spot, the Lyris spot. So, like... Is that the problem? Is Delver fine as a tempo deck that once it blows its load, it's done? Or uh, like, do, do we just have to ban every two mana card advantage engine from here on out? So to piggyback on Brian's point, all of the cards that Brian mentioned that have been banned partially due to Delver, they also all cheat on mana, and that's a big part of it. And while providing card advantage, they help outgrind the control decks because traditional tempo decks in Legacy, if we think back to like, classic Canadian threshold control decks would eventually outlast them. And that's when they would take over the game. That doesn't happen with the Delver decks of the last couple of years because of effects like Dreadhorde and Oko and Ren and Six and Deathrite. These cards all broke the rule that control decks would eventually catch up due to resource management. And that hasn't been the case over the last few years. I like how you snuck a Taxian probe into the Delver got these banned pile storm player. I mean, if you want to credit me with getting probe banned, I'll allow it. But if I think if we're being realistic, it was probably the Delver deck. I, I mean, the, the Deathrite Shaman into Young Peasy, Probe You, Therapy You, Flashback Therapy was certainly messed up. But I don't think it's fair to credit Gataxian Probe's banning completely to Delver. Completely no, but I think like it was part of what pushed it over the edge. All right, so why wouldn't we ban Delver Secrets? I want to do one more follow-up thought though, uh, first, if that's okay. So just following up in a different direction on what Brian said, another part of the reason why Delver might continuously be a problematic deck is just because of the sheer number of people who are contributing to its success. So Delver has been 
either the most played or one of the most played decks for, I don't know, somewhere on the order of the last 10 years. And there are so many people trying to refine it, so many man hours being put into refining the Delver shell. And there are definitely some cases where other decks might be better or actually are better, but if you have five or 10 pilots worldwide who are actually working on that deck on any given time, that deck isn't being pushed forward and honed nearly as much as one of these more popular and sort of like long-term prolific strategies might be. All right. So uh, it's a little bit silly to look at banning a 3-2 flyer. Like when you think about it, like it almost reminds me of the Wild Nakato banned in Modern. I think it was like eight years ago when people were a little shocked that they banned a one mana 3-3. This feels a little bit similar. Like it's a little silly to just ban like a flying evasive creature. I don't know. But... The sh- like we discussed, like the shell around Delvers, what's truly powerful about the deck. And there's versions of, I'm going to say this with air quotes again, Delver without Delvers in it right now. If you look at a deck like Pokey Pile, it is essentially Rug Delver without the Delvers in it. And the deck is succeeding to some extent. Yeah, I remember when uh, Ren and Six was in the format, uh, Eric Landon kept pushing the envelope of just like, less and less Delver, more and more Ren and Six, until he was just playing, like, mid-range Rug with four Rens. And that deck was good. So this shell does exist. Uh, but it is a house of cards, like you, like you said. <laughs> Almost literally. So, like, if days were to get removed from the shell, I, I think this deck plummets. Like, it, it's still good, but it plummets. If, uh, like fetch lands or brainstorm and we're not gonna ban any of those but like if any piece of this puzzle goes the whole like lean machine crumbles and delver is just one of those moving parts that uh greater than the sum of the parts it is one of the cogs in the machine but it is the the named card in the machine the deck isn't called rug days it's rug delver that, and if we're looking at like Wizards design philosophy, and I, I mentioned this below our section, but there's some cards that are part of the format's identity at this point, and like Wizards just isn't likely going to touch them. So we didn't bother listing them out. And that would be like Force of Will, Brainstorm, Wasteland, and Days. Like the odds that Wizards would touch these cards is just so low at this point. Like they are a part of the format's identity, and it's just not realistic to assume that they would ever ban these cards. I think Delver is kind of like flirting the line as to whether or not it's in that category. Like, such a huge portion of the legacy player base, like, either plays or has played Delver at some point. It's been, you know, one of the things that the format has been focused around for years and years and years. I don't know that it's quite entrenched in the format as something like Brainstorm is, but I kind of find it hard to imagine legacy without Delver at this point. So I don't, I don't see them firing the space laser and nuking Delver from orbit. Yeah, and, and there is some precedent uh, with the Popper format. Uh, there was a time when uh, blue-black Delver was tier one and blue-red Delver was its natural predator. And it, they banned days out of Popper, not Delver. So like that, that was the ban they went with. So I... Obviously, it's a different format, totally different context, but it's more precedent than we have about a lot of conversations where, like, we've literally seen Delver and Days together in an Eternal format, and the one that got banned was not Delver. 
All right, so the next card up is actually pretty similar to Delver Secrets in terms of metagame share. Delver was 18% at four copies. Dreadhorde Arcanist is 17% at 3.2 copies, so it's right on Delver's heel. And why would Wizards of the Coast ever consider Dreadhorde Arcanist? Well, it's free card advantage. There's no mana that has to be put into the effect on Dreadhorde Arcanist. You have to initially invest the mana into your spell the first time, but then on the flashback it's free. So it's also controllable, which means that you can pick and choose your target. So if your opponent has a creature in play, you can choose Bolt. If they have nothing, you can choose a Cantrip. So it's manageable, unlike an effect like Dark Confidant. So you remember earlier in this episode when Brian was talking about the impact that Snapcaster Mage had on opposing aggressive decks? Dreadheart Arcanist is that on all of the drugs imaginable. Where it's not just one extra sword to plowshare or bolt, it is a pile of them. Like, every time you find one, you get it again. And holy crap, does it feel real bad to be on the wrong side of this when it resolves and you can't answer it in exactly one turn cycle. Yeah, so and, part of and the from the... Uh, sorry, I'm just going to add on to Phil's point there. Uh, Phil, like, from the aggro side, for sure, you're never getting out of that. And from the control side, like, if you're... If I'm playing blue against blue and my opponent goes like snap ponder, I'm like, okay, that was a two for one. If they stick Dreadhorde Arcanist, you're dead. Like if that thing attacks more than once, like it, the, it snowballs. Cause like the, the first ponder out of the graveyard finds the, the counter spell to protect the Dreadhorde Arcanist. And then that buys time for the next brainstorm and they attack and they brainstorm into the next counter spell. So it's so much worse to play against from like it's much more powerful than Snapcaster Mage, and I I think I can say that there are obviously spots. It's not strictly better, but I believe Dreadheart Arcanist is more powerful by a lot than Snapcaster Mage as a magic card in the context of Legacy. So the card advantage is so good with Dreadheart Arcanist that we're now seeing Rugdalverless moving up to three copies of Force of Negation because the downside of these Force effects is that you have to pitch a card in order to use them for free. Well. Dreadward Arcanist provides so much free card advantage that three copies of Force and Negation, which would mean seven total, is completely fine because you're allowed to tap out on turn two to play your threat. You have up to 11 free counter spells to protect your threat, and then you untap, like Brian said, and win the game by casting Ponder and then flashing back Ponder for two more free counter spells, and that effect would then snowball. So we're seeing uh, now three copies of Force and Negation out of people like Bachi online. Who popularized it now? Edgar Magalish, I believe. Magayesh. Magayesh is now uh, promoting it also on Twitter. So we're seeing force and negation go up, and with eleven free counter spells, this is an issue. Like the way that the people would traditionally prey on these Delver decks would be to you know get them on turn one. Well, that's what that's harder to do when there's eleven free counter spells in these decks, and Dreadhorde is the thing fueling them. Yeah, and it's crazy that they're allowed to play seven forces because uh, in the past, like there have been fairer metagames in Legacy's history where the blue decks are like, can I play three Force of Wills? Like I, I believe Joe Lissette was pretty into that in his Miracles heyday. Uh, Jim Rinkowitz won a Grand Prix with zero Force of Wills in his main deck, uh, in his blue deck. Like there was a time where Force of Will was a liability to put in your deck. And 
in those previous times, if we're in a rug delver metagame where rug you're just going to play against rug three out of five matches in a league, you might want to just present a game one deck with two or three forces in it instead of the full four in a hedge the mirror. But now we're in a spot where protecting Dreadhorde Arcanist is so important that you want forces in the mirror. Like, they're fine. <laughs> you, you're going to work through it. It's not dead. Exactly. And we talked about how Dreadhorde is an enabler, similar to how Survival of the Fittest was an enabler for all these other creatures. Well, I, I don't know if that's exactly true. Was was Survival the No, Vengevon was the enabler. I'm sorry, I misspoke. I wrote this down, and now I can't even read it properly. <laughs> wait, wait. That... Vengevine wasn't the I I would think that survival is the enabler and Vengevine was the payoff like Vengevine is fine and kind of neat without survival but survival enabled the BS that's how I would define that term anyway okay well uh sorry go ahead uh, unless you want to think that Vengevine enabled survival to be broken but I think that's kind of a jump like, I, I think it makes more sense grammatically in the English language that survival is the enabler. Okay, well, my thought process was at the time of survival's banning, the deck was, like, kind of a joke up until Vengevine. I don't know. It, well, oh, yeah, it, for sure. So, like, survival before Vengevine was, like, you would put anger into your graveyard at some point and, like, give your creatures haste and use, like, trade when rider to bounce your opponent's permanence while building your hasty board and like squee goblin nabob was in the deck and like it, it had like a toolbox there was like a survival deck that had like one tarmogoyf one oriok salvagers what like and you could just it, it was definitely a joke and like survival elves was a thing where like you were mostly an elf combo deck but instead of we didn't have crater hoof or mirror entity back then you just eventually survivaled anger in your graveyard with a bunch of elves in play so it was definitely a joke before Vengevine. Yeah. Well, Dreadhorde's in a similar spot right now where it's sort of enabling the rest of the deck. But if you look at Dreadhorde on its own, it it almost feels similar to Survival where, like, yes, they're both very powerful cards. But is it actually the issue? I'm not sure. So the uh, I think if we're going to compare the... Uh, relationship of survival vengevine to dreadhorde arcanist where there is no vengevine we can point at there's i don't even think there's a conversation here to compare it to because dreadhorde arcanist's vengevine is one mana spells exactly so like they're not gonna ban brainstorm ponder sleight of hand portent lightning bolt swords of plowshares you, you, you feel me like they're yeah. they just can't do it so that was actually my next point, is that the blue shell is just so good around Dreadhorde that you can't take a piece of the blue shell out and make Dreadhorde worse. Is there any two-mana threat in Legacy that is even comparable to Dreadhorde Arcanist? Well, here on the Eternal Glory podcast, when Dreadhorde came out, we compared it to Dark Confidant, because at one point, Tempo decks did play Dark Confidant back in the day. Uh, and they both create virtual card advantage, that sort of thing. It's just Dreadhorde's a lot more efficient at creating it than we initially thought it was here on this podcast before you two lovely gentlemen joined me. Yeah, the, those fools back then didn't know how to evaluate a card. But we definitely did. <laughs> but so <laughs> I guess the, the question, if by threat you mean creature, then probably not. Uh, if by threat we mean two mana spell we need to worry about, uh, we're in a format with like Chalice of the Void, Wishclaw Talisman. Uh, so like there's 
there's some some other powerful things to happen for two mana, but Dreadhorde Arcanist somehow feels better than all of those other powerful things you could do. Yeah, I've cast a lot of chalices recently, and let me tell you, if I resolve a chalice on one on turn one, I still die a shit ton of the time. <laughs> yes, a chalice is not what it used to be. Well, Phil, why don't you pause that for our next two cards, considering how they're partially the reason that you feel that way. <laughs> yeah, most certainly. Alright, so the next one up is actually Oko Thief of Crowns, which is in 33% of decks, which is more than the first two. And it's at, sorry, I scrolled down too much. 2.8 copies. So it's a little bit less than the first two, but the percentage of decks is higher. So you probably don't want to play as many Okos, but you want to be playing some. Right. So so big clarification on that 33% number. Uh, so Oko is clearly in tons of decks that aren't Delver. Uh, like uh, Delver was, uh, what was it, like 18... 13% of the metagame, something like that. And uh, Delver and Dreadhorde Arcanist were both in about 18% of decks. So that's like pretty close to the metagame at large. Share, Oko's in 33% of decks. That's like every Delver deck plus another 20% of decks. So uh, Oko's in all sorts of decks. That's just... I don't know who needed that cleared up, but I, I wanted to say it before we just threw that big number out there. I want to add a addendum onto your thing. So you mentioned Delver being 13%, but then the card itself was played at 18. That's because there's more than rug Delver variants. That uh, 13% was just rug. There's also oh, okay. blue red and all those other ones. So all, right, all that together, makes a lot of sense. Yep. yep. All right. So why would we possibly look at Oko Thief of Crowns? Well, we mentioned that there's 11 free counter spells in Legacy that these decks are often running between 4 Force of Will, 3 Force of Negation, and 4 Days. Well, Oko Thief of Crowns takes care of literally everything that falls through the cracks. If it doesn't get countered, it gets turned into an elk. And that's a pretty good backup to have, especially when your answer then becomes your win condition later on in the game. So, partially, so due to Phil's point about if he feels lucky enough to have his shells resolve through those 11 free counter spells, Oko is there to clean it up. It's going to turn it into an elk. So Chalice of the Void used to be a card that naturally preyed on Delver shells because the decks usually cost one mana because you would have Delver, Nimble Mongoose, Monastery, Swift Spear, classic Delver threats. Well, the threats leveled up a bit. They became Dreadhorde Arcanist. They became Ren and Six, and the curve went from mostly ones to one, twos, and threes with True Name Nemesis and Oko. So there's the fact that Delver now has a real mana curve paired with the fact that cards in Delver or now have mean deck answers like Oko or Brazen Borrower. Yeah, the the Oko and Brazen Borrower being in the same set, and Brazen Borrower mostly falling off while Oko just continues to rise, uh, is, is a big uh, nod in Oko's direction for uh, if it's actually a problem or not. Like, Unsummon is good enough in some situations. Like, Unsummoning Merit Lage will buy you the time you want. Like, Unsummoning a Chalice of the Void... So you can jam a bunch of spells into for a turn, but that chalice is coming back. So unsummon is a totally different thing than like pognify. So the like that's like per it's a permanent answer to permanent cards, which which is just so much better. I can't overstate how much this singular card has spun matchups. Like when when I was playing Prison, I used to prey on Delver. Like it was a it was a joke, 
Um, I don't know, like, realistically, I probably had a 60-plus percent matchup against Delver, but it felt way higher than that at the time. And now, like, between Force of Negation and Oko and Brazen Borrower and all of those things, it's it's so hard to cheese a win versus Delver now. Like, that, that just does not happen. I'm yeah, glad you I, also... Sorry, go ahead. Uh, so I, w- I was kind of on the ground floor of Oko. Uh, the the week that Throne of Eldraine came out, I top-aided the uh, Star City Classic with Rug Delver featuring Oko. Uh, I did... It was a it was a Star City team open. I was in the Legacy seat on Saturday. We didn't day two. I did not have Oko in my deck. And then Saturday night, Lawrence Harmon messaged me. He's like, you're playing Oko, right? And I was like, LOL, what? Is that a thing? And he was like, yeah. So I, I borrowed one Oko, and my win and in was against a Merit Lage deck. And my opponent found a window. They made their main phase Merit Lage past the turn. That's normally GG. And I just cast Oko. And I was like, holy shit. This is the truth. And, and like, just that, that, and my opponent and I realized, me with glee and him with horror, what this means for legacy, like, in the same moment. <laughs> like, as far as I know, I was the first person to, like, Elka Merit Lage in real life. And it, it, it won me the match. It put me in top eight. And it, it was a, a fundamental shift in legacy when all of that happened. Also, Lawrence Harmon figured that out. I'm not trying to take credit for his awesome discovery there. Yeah, he's a genius. Like, Absolutely. mad props to him. I have, I have so much respect for him. Yes, I, I have won a lot of money in Legacy tournaments playing Lawrence, Lawrence Liss. Alright, so a lot of people say that Oko has an unfun gaming experience. This probably doesn't relate as much to me, considering I have less permanents that can be turned into Elks. But for someone like Phil that really wants to keep his Chalice of the Voids, I can imagine this permanent effect that's also reoccurring being fairly unfun to play against. And we talked about that a little bit earlier on in the episode about how you don't want to scare away the people that come to your locals once a week and that sort of thing. Oko isn't exactly a fun card to play against on the opposite side of the table. And it's just worth mentioning. All right. Remind me to circle back to this point when we're in the why not section. Well, we're about to be there. All right. And I believe Phil made this next point, so I'll let him say that. Okay. So in terms of answers, Oko is one of the most flexible cards ever printed. It's a clock when you need a clock. It's life gain. If you have small creatures, it grows them. If your opponent has big creatures, it shrinks them. Your opponent has utility creatures, not anymore. It's this, like, three-mana must-answer haymaker that can basically stop many strategies single-handedly. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. If I'm playing a deck like Red, Red Prison and an Oko resolves, it feels like a 7 for 1. Like, that card will undo 5 to 6 turns of my gameplay alone. So does it feel like you got Blood Mooned? <laughs> Look, man, I'm just... I'm just talking about how I feel. Yeah, so uh, we know like how you feel, and I agree that Oko does largely invalidate a lot of uh, classic prison pieces, but at the same time, you're playing a deck that's trying to make your opponent lose to one card. So, like, is it an unreasonable legacy power level, or is it just really good? Like, I- I've been blood mooned out of games before I get a turn. Like, 
nobody's turn oneing Oko, and even if they do, there's still game to play. So like, shrug emoji. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, what what is the okay. the difference? I, I think here? I know the the fundamental difference here, right? So a deck like Red Prison is designed to punish subsections of the format, right? It's it's punishing decks like Delver, at least theoretically, that play these like very greedy multicolored mana bases. And if you're playing something that has a bunch of basics like Death and Taxes or Miracles, the impact that a Blood Moon has is almost zero. And the difference is that like when Oko is bad, Oko is still a win condition that will kill you very easily on its own. And when Blood Moon is bad, it does literal nothing and sometimes actually makes your own deck worse. Yes, so I, I definitely agree with that. I, I was teeing you up a little bit for conversation. Uh, like, I, I know I've told this story before, but uh, Eternal Weekend Paris last year, my opponent round one on the play, mauled to six, and then went Ancient Tomb, Chrome Mox, Imprint Something, Blood Moon, go. Passed the turn with two cards in hand. And I was like, Island Astrolabe, go, with seven cards in hand. And like, that's the difference between Blood Moon and Oko. Oko will always play. Like, even if it's just, like, make a 3-3 every other turn, it will always play. I know we mentioned this a couple episodes ago, but it something that comes back to mind is we talked about Pithy Needle and how you want your uh, answers to also be threats a little bit. And that's what Oko is. It's an answer and a threat where something like Needle will sit on the table, very similar to a Blood Moon, and just not really affect moving your game plan forward. It stops your opponent from winning, but it doesn't actually win you the game. Yeah, like the comparison between like a braid, which was a huge upgrade in the Delver toolbox when it was printed, like a braid is a versatile answer, but it's still only an answer. And then like Brazen Borrower is a pretty big upgrade to a braid and Brazen Borrower kind of sucks compared to Oko. So like uh, along this continuum of versatile cards you could play, Oko is definitely the banger. All right, so why don't we get into the why not section? We'll let Brian tee it up because he did not like the unfun game experience comment. Okay, so in the terms of unfun game experiences that will send your your new player away from the format forever, and since we're talking about a three-mana sorcery speed card, show and tell is legal in this format, and everyone's okay with it. Like, are we going to ban Oko that, like, it's a three-mana blue spell, sorcery speed, that generates slow advantage over time in a format where we have a three-mana blue sorcery. It's even even easier to cast, because it's only blue. Oko, you need green as well. So even easier to cast, you can jam it turn two off an ancient tomb, and it wins the game on the spot. Like what what's the what's the argument to ban Oko when show and tell is a legal magic card? It's a good question. Crickets, 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 crickets. I thought so. I don't know. I've I've never, well, I've almost never felt like show-and-tell decks were really oppressive because you get to try to attack them from a bunch of different angles, right? Like, discard works, counterspells work, uh, creature removal is a little bit dicey, but like at least things like Caracas have some game there. And most of the time, they actually don't win on the spot, right? To win on the spot, you need, like... Two lands, plus show-and-tell, plus omniscience, plus Amrakul, plus Grizzlebrand. You can effectively win with just, like, show-and-tell, Amrakul, Grizzlebrand, plus the mana source, or uh, omniscience, plus the mana sources to get there. But, like, there's a bunch of random things that your opponents can put in off the show-and-tell that also mess you up. 
uh, ensnaring bridge being a really common example of that. So it is in the the grand picture of the format is like having a card like ensnaring bridge in your deck to put in when they show and tell you a more reasonable thing to do than have red blast or abrupt decay in your 75 to pick off the Oko. Like, and, and there's like windows too, where it's like, Oh God, I can't tap out. What if they show and tell I won't be ready. I have to hold up this fluster storm for the rest of time. But like Oko, like, okay, I jam, I tap out, they jam Oko, they elk my thing. I abrupt decay and we keep playing like that. You can, the, the risk reward of just Oko sticking in a lot of back and forth matchups, it is so much less than a show and tell result. I have two points I would like to make. So the first is, and I'm glad you mentioned this because I remember watching a legacy legacy streamer stream and mentioning this and getting laughed at. There's a point in which Fluster Storm became no longer playable in Legacy, and people when they were first working on the snow builds were running Okos, and uh, previously to that ran in six, but then they were running Astrolabe, and the cards that mattered quit being creatures or quit being spells they became planeswalkers and creatures like uro and foster storm's playability went way down because it quit countering the cards that mattered and foster storm just like it doesn't see play anywhere dover decks don't play it anymore and that was my first point so if you would like to say anything about that no i i agree with it uh i i like going back to my miracles list from scg con like i think over a full year ago at this point, whatever tournament Karn the Great Creator was legal as a four of in vintage, whenever that was allowed, like I was already on Spell Pierce. Uh, War of the Spark made Spell Pierce better than Flusterstorm in Eternal formats. And even going a year before that, uh, the, the year that I won Vintage Champs, Matt Sperling also top eighted that tournament. And he was playing Rug Xerox, which is a mid range uh, rug control deck if you're not familiar with vintage terminology. And it was just, it was known. It, like, you play Flusterstorm in that deck. Two copies, period. It is just the standard, That that's what you do. Matt played zero Flusterstorms and several Spell Pierce. Nobody was playing Spell Pierce. Everyone was playing Flusterstorm. And he dismantled Shop's decks all weekend, just cut a path to the top eight because he was Spell Piercing, like, uh, Trinispheres and Sphere of Resistance and Chalice of the Void when other people had rotting fluster storms in their hand. So like the context of what matters, uh, of course is always at play and you're right. Fluster storm is not a playable card in legacy anymore. So the second thing I wanted to mention was, I think that you have a good point that we're within a vacuum comparing Oko and show and tell is a joke. However, cards are not defined by, you know, just the card itself. Sometimes, sometimes it's the shell around the card. And when you look at a deck like Show and Tell, it doesn't get to play 11 free counter spells to protect it. Like, Show and Tell doesn't get to play Force of Negation. Sometimes you can play Days, sometimes. Like, there's lists that do. So, in theory, you have 8. But for the most part, Show and Tell is a Spell Pierce Force of Will deck most of the time. When you look at a deck that's playing Oko, 11 free counter spells to make sure that your Oko resolves and lives through that Pyroblast that you talked about. That's the grand scheme of things, just because it's not exactly fair to just say like, well, yeah, Oko's broken, but have you ever read the card Peer into the Abyss? Like, like you just can't compare things one to one because like it doesn't make sense or like world fire. Okay, so counterpoint, Peer into the Abyss and world fire are absurd ways to uh, define what I just said. 
I defined two three-mana sorcery speed blue spells that exist in the format and are actually played. Obviously, Peer into the Abyss, if it costs one blue, would be busted. If it if it costs three blue, it'd be busted. It costs seven, and most of it's black. So, like, no, that is not even close to what I was saying. But your a a more tempered version of your point does is a reasonable one to make. All right, Brian has been defeated. Just uh, scoreboard. Brian won. Uh, we'll move on. And... No, my point was still valid. <laughs> It's just like I was extrapolating onto it because like I wanted to show how ridiculous that take was that like just comparing one card to one card doesn't make any sense because that's like in the grand scheme of things like Ren and Six on its own isn't the most powerful card in the format. But when you put the shell around it, yes, Ren and Six was very good. Ren and Six was in a ton of different decks. What are you even talking about? You're off the rails. Let's get back onto our notes. All right. Going back to Oko. Um... Notably, this would be a really weird time to kind of look at Oko, right? So we're not in the heyday of Snow Dominance anymore. Uh, Snow is still a common deck. It is a deck that performs well, I'd say, but it's maybe not at the absolute pinnacle in terms of win percentage and tournament results right now. Like, not at all. It's not so, the boogeyman that everyone thought it was going to be after Lurus was banned. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. So we should probably have read at least some of this as people are adapting to Oko and they're doing more things to respect it. They've learned some lines that can play around some of the things it does a little bit better and that sort of thing. So it would be kind of weird to address this card. Like, I, f I fucking hate Oko with like every every piece of my being, but I don't I don't know that I could I could like pull the trigger and put it down right now as much as it pains me to say that i'm in a similar position to you phil where i feel like the card is almost like brian said we're the point where it's very 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 good but is it ban worthy i don't know if i could pull the trigger on oko personally i think that is it bannable maybe you could make the argument but i don't know if i could do it yeah like i i i know how much brian loves comparisons to other cards but like <laughs> uh Another three mana blue card that shook up Legacy and everyone wanted it banned because no one could beat it was True Name Nemesis. And it took a long time for Legacy to adjust to that card being in the meta. Like No, 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 just... no, no, no. It took fucking card printings for us to adjust to that. Let's let's clarify there. We couldn't, whoa, 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 we couldn't whoa, whoa. No, answer no, no. that card. No, so the... Plague Engineer. Pl Plague Engineer killed it dead. I'm not talking about that. Like, it's not playable anymore because Plague Engineer exists. But there was a long period of time. There was a period where it was printed and everyone was like, fuck this. This is bullshit. Ban it. And then there was a period where people had stuff like, like they knew how to leave up Red Blast or play Council's Judgment, play Sweepers. Like, there, there were things you could do about True Name Nemesis other than just die to it before we had Plague Engineer that just laughed it out of the format. So there was a big period where it was a powerful, proactive card that people that sometimes ran away with the game if the opponent wasn't ready to answer it when they needed to. And sometimes it was just answered cleanly. And I feel like Oko, while is a is a better card than True Name, it is a more powerful card. I'm not saying they are the same thing, but I think that uh, the, Oko is closer to True Name Nemesis than it is to something bannable. 
isn't it sort of crazy that true name isn't good enough anymore for the rug shell just like throwing that out there like it, for years it was a staple three of in the delver decks so, like it was your top end it was how you closed out games and now the rug deck is just like why would i ever play true name nemesis yeah why would i play a three one that's hard to kill when i can play infinite three threes <laughs> i miss the days where i complained about a three one merfolk let me tell you what <laughs> yeah the holy light is not getting much play these days uh, i've registered right. more of that card than i care to admit so the last card on the list is force of negation and like brian said th- these numbers are because more decks than just rug delver play it but force of negation is currently at 41 percent of decks in legacy at two copies and if we compare this to brainstorm brainstorm's at 52 percent and force of will is at 51 percent according to MTG Goldfish, but these are also at four copies compared to the Force of Negations 2. So it's a little bit tougher because, like Brian stated earlier, it's not just Rugdalver playing this. It's Bugly of old, and it's Snow decks, and it's a bunch of other blue decks in Legacy. But from looking at Brainstorm and Forcible, we can tell that blue decks are roughly 50% or more in the format. And part of the reason why you would want to look at something like Force of Negation is it's creating a subtle stranglehold on the format. Decks like Belcher and Uthsal spells, and this was the point I wanted to circle back to from Phil's point earlier about doing wonky stuff, you just don't get to do that anymore in Legacy because there used to be a point where you could register Belcher for an event and go, well, there's probably like 50% of blue decks, and the odds they have Forceful is only 40%. I guess I'm going to register this Belcher pile and pray to get lucky. You can't do that anymore. The blue decks are over 50%, and they're 60% to have a forcible. You can't play silly combo decks that don't have a fair chance against blue. And it's so much harder to resolve your Chalice of the Void, or your Trinisphere, or your Blood Moon on turn one. Like, even if you're on the plate, they still have seven free counter spells. When I did my brewing contest a month or two ago, and I played those decks on stream, it was utterly miserable. Like, the combination of... Force of Negation plus Oko plus Dreadhorde Arcanist and like that overall just like incredibly powerful shell just meant that I had so many non-games like I tried to do something cool and I almost never did the thing with any of those decks. It was so rough. It's so hard to play something that's fringe or rogue or maybe it's so hard to develop those things is a better way to put that. And there's so little effort put into it. Like we mentioned in the Dreadhorde section, the card advantage is essentially free with Dreadhorde, which means that the downside of playing seven forces isn't really that bad anymore, especially when you're running four Preordain and four Brainstorm and four Ponder. And you get to, st- I, I guess they don't technically run four Preordain, they run like three. But like these effects stack up, and like it just doesn't matter if you have to go down to four cards on turn two if you're going to be at seven cards on turn four. So. That's part of the reason why. And you don't have to hold open mana. Like in the past, rug decks used to have to hold open Spell Snare or Spell Pierce. With Days, Force of Negation, and Forcible, you tap out on turn one for Delver, turn two, you tap out for Dread Horde, turn three, you tap out for Oko. There's no protecting yourself. Like that's all free now. Like there's no cost into protecting yourself. Like it just happens. You either have it or you don't. So. And then, even if like you don't have it, and one of your spells resolved, you get to take over the game with one of the answers that got through unchecked. I feel like my games of Legacy effectively end faster than they've ever ended before. Like, I don't know, Bryant, if you're having the same experience, but like when I'm playing fair decks, 
when my opponent just like sticks this Dreadhorde or Oko on turn two or three and I can't answer it and they like get get to start doing their thing with it, like I'm dead. Like every once in a while I'll wiggle out, but I, I just feel like the game has ended. It's sort of like this weird like almost combo format where it's like, all right, do you have the answer to my thing? Nope. Well, okay, I probably win. Well, Dreadhorde's a little bit worse for me than Oko. I can certainly win games through Oko. But part of it is that, like, these cards made the blue shell go over 50% in Legacy, and the cards like Force of Will and Force of Negation that actually are super effective against me went way up in play. And right before War of the Spark and uh, Modern Horizons, Bob Huang wrote an article, or maybe it was a Twitter post, I can't remember, about how it was the first time in Legacy's history where the non-blue ducks took over the greater percentage in Legacy than the blue ducks. And then Force of Negation happened, and that pendulum swung way far back the other way. Just because now the blue decks get to be so consistent at stopping everything that happens in Legacy that if you're a player looking to win, it gives you the best odds of winning in any given tournament, which I know is what Brian loves because he likes that consistency, those odds of winning. So why don't yeah. we let Brian talk for a second? <laughs> yeah, like I I am not going to uh, defend that what everything you said isn't happening. Like it is uh, for sure. And from the perspective of the dark ritual caster and the chalice of the void caster like i i kind of see why that would be frustrating from the blue side like all i want to do is get to another draw step like that's that's basically my whole plan when i play legacy it's like let me see another draw step if i see enough of them i'm gonna win so the printing of force negation for me was like oh good i'm gonna get cheesed out less often and that is great for me I think it is like it will reward players who are willing to play the best deck with the most options and play it well. But there are those who like cheesing, and there's a lot of them. And uh, I, I know that they're out there, and I know legacy players uh, marry their decks, marry their archetypes, and I, I mean, I'm I'm guilty too. I just happen to be married to the one that got Force of Negation. <laughs> so like, uh, I, I'm certainly not saying those things have not happened and from my side i love having a fifth or sixth force of will in my in my blue deck so i don't just die on turn one or two it's yeah it's pretty nice i have no idea how i feel about this issue like i don't know if i like the existence of force of negation or not because like i totally see both sides like it it's simultaneously like both the fun police that stops you from doing cool things while also the safety net that keeps you from dying early so like i don't know where i stand on this one yeah, so I guess like going back to the what we've touched a few times of like uh, play experience or like joy or like likeliness for a new person to return, uh, is the new person more likely to never play Legacy again because their show and tell got force of negation or because they died to show and tell? Like who who's going to walk away with a bad feeling? And uh, I I. I suspect it's going to be the person who got show and told, but also does that matter? Is that something that should be considered when they're talking about format health? For what it's worth, I think force negation actually limits the number of decks that are viable in legacy where like new players coming in probably would be more, I mean, this is all subjective, but if they could see all the cool things that are possible within legacy, they might find one that reaches out to them. Like they could be like the Nick fit player trying to resolve academy rector or like some weird seven man enchantment i don't know what they're doing these days but like the amount of competitive decks is narrowed so uh i 
I guess that depends on what, how we define competitive. Like you cited Belcher and Oops All Spells in our, our intro here. And <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I ever would have sleeved one of those up to play a tournament. Um, uh, the Epic Storm has Veil of Summer and Thoughtseize Effects. Like uh, you, you, you can work through it. You take your time, you get there. Uh, there's, there's like other follow-up to it. So, uh, and, and you think about like, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think of off the wall decks that just died of force of negation. Like look at Enchantress. It's most important spell as a creature. Uh, look at burn goblin guide, Eidolon, nice force of negation, idiot. You're dead. Like, uh, death and taxes, maverick elves, like which how many of those decks are just folding to force of negation in the way that like specifically belcher does i think uh it's interesting that you mentioned burn because i do think that is a deck that got hit hard by force of negation it doesn't even have the life loss of force of will but it stops the end game fire blast that would normally you know get them there like you fi- you finally get your blue opponent to tap out but now they have seven counter spells for your price of progress and a force and a fire blast like burn is a deck that used to be a lot more viable than it is now like, that's for a number of reasons. It's not just Seven Forces. It's Arkham's Astral Leave and a bunch of other things, but... Like, Are we just going to completely ignore the, like, blue-green life gain? Yeah, Oko. And Yeah. Like I said, it's a number of things. But I think one of the biggest takeaways of this episode is that it's not any specific card. It's, like, where magic's gone in the last couple of years. It's the shells that are being created by these decks. I mean, we haven't used the phrase this episode, but, like power creep of 2019 2020 is uh is very much apparent like it's it like the things are so powerful that we're not even talking about something like plague engineer right now right like that gets to like poop all over tribal strategies that people love and that hasn't even entered the conversation right now granted we're like mostly talking about rug delver but you know so why wouldn't why wouldn't we ban force negation right so when I tweeted uh, like about a month ago about Force Negation having a chokehold on the format, one of the most common responses, other than like, oh, a combo player, was why would you ban Force Negation when Forcible exists? Well, I think Forcible is sort of grandfathered into Legacy at this point. Like it is part of the format's identity. Like if you want to play Forcible, you play Legacy. It's the format where you can do anything, but you have to be kept in check by Forcible. And one of the biggest possible issues with this is consistency and i brought that up in the post and someone asked me they had a really good question which is at what point is consistency an issue i'm not wizards i can't pretend to be i can only express my own thoughts here and i don't know what the threshold is for if something's too consistent at what point do you ban according to wizards it's 55 percent against the field like that's what i have to go off of so, yeah, so Top Miracles, uh, that that is a, a real precedent. Like the, Top Miracles was not broken or degenerate. It was just extremely consistent at doing a fair thing. So uh, there is there is recent precedent to knock a deck out of the format, like a fair blue, like force of will kill you over a long game sort of deck just over meta dominance. I want my games to be different. Like, I I want to have interesting games of Legacy that aren't quite like anything that I've played before. And I feel like a lot of current games of Legacy are kind of samey. 
Now, every once in a while, like, I still come across those games that make me love Legacy, and, like, I, I exclaim, like, this is why I play this format, and throw my hands up in the air, and it's it's great. But then, like, recently, it's just a lot of, like, tap out for 2019-2020 card. Uh-oh. We're basically done. Scoop them up. Like, I, I, I want my games to be interactive and skill testing, and I don't know. I don't, I don't always feel like we're there right now. All right, so to circle... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so that's a a pretty big step. Like, I know a lot of people feel that way, and I don't disagree with the point. Is there... Is one of these cards on our, like, most wanted list we just ran through? Uh, Delver, Dreadhorde, Oko, or Force of Negation? Like, are they... Are any of those a bannable card that would bring back the legacy you want to play? I think we're, we're pretty far past that. Like, we'd have to undo 2019 to ever get that legacy back. Yeah, I don't I don't think we ever get back to legacy the way it was pre-2019. Like, there are so many things that are just, like, so incredible and game-changing that have barely entered the conversation today. Um, Karn the Great Creator being another one that just, like, drastically changed the format, um, changed how all the prison sort of decks are going to be doing their sideboarding and whatnot. There's um, also Narsa, Astrolabe, Icefin, Coatl, Oro. Like, there's a number of cards. Like, Plague Engineer, like you mentioned earlier. There's a lot going on. Like, personally for me, Hope of Gearper is no longer playable because of Icefin, Coatl. And I love Hope of Gearper. Yep. And, and and then, like, Veil of Summer also. Uh, like, that, there's a lot of stuff going on. And, and then, like, this is the reason we... With, bit our tongue the last couple of weeks uh try it before we approach this conversation because like what could we do about rug delver if we were watsy like it is like kind of a fun thought experiment but it's naturally gonna slide into okay we fixed rug delver's dominance now let's get rid of you know these other eight cards that you just rattled off the top of your head and, and at that point are we trying to like are we trying to make the format healthy or are we trying to get back like something from the days of old that are, that is just gone? And like, is the format unhealthy or is it just different? I don't think that you should ever approach it from a let's get back to X. Like, that's not a good way of looking at things. I think you should just try to get back to healthy. That's my personal opinion on this. But uh, to circle back to Force Negation for a second. So when you lose a game to Force Negation, it's never obvious. Like, you might have gotten your Sylvan Library countered on turn two. And you're like, okay, well, I didn't lose the game right there. And that's really difficult to see because it's really easy to see when you lose a game to Dreadhorde Arcanist or Oko. But in effect, like Force Indigation, it's much more innocent. It's not something that you see that directly causes you to lose a game unless you're going all in on Infernal Tutor. Like, that sort of plays obvious to tell that you lost to Force Indigation. But most of the time, cards like Force Indigation are... They're, it's tougher to see the effects over time of like hey this card could be an issue because you're not directly losing a game to a card like that that's just something i wanted to bring up yeah and for some negation uh like like we've mentioned veil of summer we've mentioned discard spells and uh i i sort of mentioned creatures like you could just cast some creatures uh that's not going to help belcher or storm but like 
decks like elves, maverick, goblins, uh, merfolk slivers. Like, there's plenty of tribal things you can do. You could just shove monastery mentor onto the stack. You you all know I'm into that. So like there there are creatures that can win games too. And uh, like I I I just there's so many ways to work around a force of negation that I, I don't think that the force is going to be in anyone's band conversation. Uh, though, uh, the, the point that it is like, and it's also just like almost strictly worse than force of will. Like, obviously it's more hard castable. It doesn't cost life. But other than that, like the timing restrictions are real too. They're huge. Yeah. So like it, how, how would we ban like how could they justify banning force of negation over force of will and uh, it other than we want legacy to be more like it was or like other than admitting that there are untouchable pillars of the format that need to stay that they're never going to touch so i i just don't see this in anyone's band conversation despite the effect it is having on the format I've enjoyed basically every legacy format for, you know, the past 10 years or whatever at this point, minus most of the last year or so. And, like, it's not always just nostalgia that I'm thinking about, right? Like, I love top era miracles. I thought Deathrite Shaman era uh, decks were really interesting and fun to play against. Like, I enjoyed the companion mechanic, like, all the crazy Loris sub-games and such. Um, so, like, I don't think we have to go back to any one time period. Like, Legacy has been great as a whole for the past decade. Um, so I, I'm not trying to get back to the, the days of old. But I, I feel something missing in my heart right now. All right, so what would be the solution then? Brian, you have a pretty big uh, chunk here. Why don't you start? Uh, so Rug Delver, you mentioned earlier, started as Canadian Threshold. Canadian Threshold was a viable deck before Delver of Secrets was even printed. It, it was ba- For those who aren't as old as us, Canadian Threshold was basically the Rug Delver shell. It was a low land count, wasteland, stifle, daze, force of will, lightning bolt. And it killed with Nimble Mongoose, Werebear, uh, I believe uh, Burning or Burning Tree Shaman was like played in that deck sometimes. Like it had a lot of weird creatures. This was before Delver and before Tarmogoyf. This was already a viable strategy. So uh, in in Tarmogoyf, and then even more so in Delver, uh, that shell got a huge shot in the arm. And now it's just this like lean main efficiency machine. Uh, comes out strong, tries to push over the finish line, and its end game used to be lightning bolt. Like if you could clear clear the battlefield at seven or more life, you were probably fine. You were gonna be able to navigate that from there. Now that's just not true. Uh, and like like I said, the Cruz, Dig, Ren, Luris, Deathrite Shaman, uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist, Oko, those are actual card advantage in a shell that is already tier one without them. So is it reasonable to ban every cheap card advantage engine moving forward so Delver gets to stay around? Uh, I don't think that's sustainable. Like that That's the uh, ban Vengevine versus ban Survival conversation. And my solution, at least for now, uh, is to ban nothing and let the format adapt. Uh, if I had to, like, gun to my head, fix Rug Delver, quote-unquote fix, like, 
fix its dominance, make sure it doesn't happen. Delver is the card I would clip. But I, I, I don't, I am not super convinced any of that needs to happen, but uh, Delver is the one that I would hit if I had to hit one. Though I did not think about it when I was typing up my thoughts, Days is also a contender. Like, I, I think Days leaving the format would hurt the least. I think Delver would still get to exist as an identity, but uh, it, but Days would really change how that deck works. So that those are my thoughts on how to quote-unquote fix this quote-unquote problem. So I like to think that I'm fairly anti-ban, and I don't like talking about bans. Even like when Ren and Six was banned, I didn't think that it needed to go. I was like, why don't we allow more time for this crew to stick around, see if we can fight through it like that sort of <laughs> Spoken thing? Spoken like someone who's not playing X1s every wrong. day. <laughs> yeah, you were good. so wrong about that. So like... I don't like having an episode all about like fixing the problem and like what we need to do for a solution, that sort of thing. So like, I don't take this very, like, I don't want to be the podcast that has an entire episode on like yet another band discussion. Like, it's just not fun, but the win percentage of rug delvers brought us here. And I don't think that there's a single card almost that you can remove that wizards would actually remove. Like Brian mentioned like banning days I know that they did it in Popper, but, like, I just can't see them doing it. Like, I think it's, like, one of those grandfathering cards. And if you remove Oko, Grixis Delver comes back. They just run Kalgan's Command and Thoughtseize again. We saw it during the Luris era. We've seen it previously. And Grixis is a strong archetype. They get Brazen Borrower instead of Oko because it fills a similar role, albeit it's not permanent. Like Brian said, Unsummon is not the same thing as Pongify. So it's not the same. And if you ban Dreadhorde Arcanist, they can go to Bug. So, I mean, similar, they can also go back to Grixis, but, like, Bug Delver, I actually ran into it twice over the weekend in the Legacy Challenge. I asked uh, one of the opponents why they were on Bug, because I thought it was weird facing Bug twice. They said that it's a natural predator to Rug Delver. Uh, I know that one of the people started out 4-0, and I was like, wow, they're actually going to top 8. Maybe Bug Delver will be the next thing. They then finish 4-3. And I'm not trying to make this person feel bad by discussing the results or whatever, but, like, is Bug Delver actually a predator to Rug Delver? I don't know if it is. But I will say this. I did think it was interesting that Bug Delver has a built-in answer to Carpet of Flowers. So you lose the uh, card advantage engine and Dreadhorde Arcanist, and you get more answers to the cards that beat you, but is that a reasonable trade-off? So, I mean, Abrupt Decay seems pretty hot at dealing with a lot of our uh, our sort of like hot topic issues of the day. Yeah. So I think it's pretty unlikely that Wizards would ever ban Force Negation, even though it's something that, in my opinion, they should keep their eyes on. And I know that before they banned Gitaxian Probe, they said that it was on their watch list, and that's what actually triggered me to buy nice Thought Seasons. So I think that they should possibly begin to look at Force Negation. I don't think that perhaps they remove it now i think that maybe if they decided to remove anything it should probably be dreadhorde arcanist and then keep an eye on force negation for down the road like this not everything needs to happen at once but i do think that the delver deck is a deck where if you remove one it doesn't actually get that much worse just because the shell is so strong so that's my opinion and without force negation in the format the delver decks or without dreadhorde in the format i'm sorry the delver decks they can still run force integration, but there becomes more work in it. Like 
when you look at Sunoco, they run Sylvan Library and Uro to make up for the card disadvantage from uh, Force Negation. They don't run Dreadhorde themselves. So there's other ways of generating that card advantage, but at least like the cards I just mentioned, it's a three-card package instead of a two-card package. Um, I guess I'll do my chunk now. Um, as a whole, I'm okay with Delver being a part of the format and likely being the best deck in the format at any given time. But that said, I think for years and years and years to come, if something major doesn't change about this shell, we're just going to continue to see bannings around this shell from time to time. Because anytime we see pushed cards like we've been seeing for the past year or so, the, the Delver shell can latch on, adapt its colors, and find a way to play them. Right now, Dreadhorde Arcanist is probably the spookiest card to me. I feel like it generates the greatest number of non-games, and it's a two-mana snowball card that is just like the, the Swiss Army Knife you need. You know, in combo matchups, it finds you more counter spells. In the fair creature-based matchups, it's extra removal spells. It just kind of does everything. And since that card has become a four-of in Delver, I felt so much worse about all my decks that had a quote-unquote good Delver matchup. And that's probably the card that I can point to and go like, this is the biggest reason why that's the case. So if I were going to start doing my trimming and I were going to do it conservatively one card at a time, I might start there. I think Delver's untouchable. And I think Days might also be in that category, just like grandfathered in, as we've said, because it's been around for so long. But if Wizards also, like, came and wanted a political revolution, and they just wanted to do, like, crazy upheaval and ban eight cards and undo some 2019-2020 stuff, I wouldn't be mad, is all I'm saying. All right, do you guys have any uh, closing thoughts that weren't covered in the uh, show notes? I can tell that Brian's been biting his tongue for like a couple minutes, so this is his opportunity. Uh, no, you're mistaken. I'm actually falling asleep in my chair. No offense. <laughs> no offense to my co-host, but uh, Phil and I, uh, we started this podcast saying that we are burnt out educators and it's like day four with students. And uh, it it's, it's after 8 p.m. at the time of recording and... That's when I start winding down for bed these days. <laughs> so I was just letting you guys do your sections and kick back in my chair, let it all wash over me. So I I am complete on what I have to say about this topic. I hope we get a lot of uh, feedback and conversation about this. Like that, we're like I I don't know. We we try not to approach this of just like wow wow rug delver's good wow I want to be a baby again. Like that's not that's not what we were trying to do, and I hope we avoided doing it. Uh, so, like, we we floated some pros and some cons for a lot of different options, and I would love to hear it discussed uh, on Twitter, Reddit, on our uh, Facebook, our website, like what whatever, wherever you are, let us know your thoughts on this. And there are plenty of people who love current legacy. And there are plenty of people who think, like, the diversity is great not right now, and they're real excited about things like ninjas being viable. So, like, there are definitely pros to current Legacy. So, like, if you're yeah, one Legacy of Yeah, Legacy doesn't suck. Yeah. It, it just doesn't. Uh, there, There's a deck that is approaching the concerning level of win rate and market share, 
but Legacy does not suck. I'm not excited about it. it. Like, this isn't one of those times where I'm like, man, I'm off of work. I'm going to go, you know, cram in two leagues this evening. I don't, I don't feel that way about Legacy right now, but it's it's fine. I'll, you know, I'd, I, I'd drink it. I'd, I'd enjoy a nice glass of Legacy, but I don't know that I'm going back for the second or third one in an evening. Yeah, I, I agree that I'm not in a rush to jump into Legacy queues when I get home from work. I'd rather draft Amonkhet. But, like, if there was a GP uh, tomorrow that was healthy to go to, a Legacy, or some Legacy Premier event, Star City event, I would be pretty happy playing current Legacy in a Premier tournament setting. Uh, as far as, like, sitting on my couch using an hour and a half, two hours of my leisure time to play the format, I'm lukewarm on that. I have no idea what I would register if I had a serious event that I had to play right now. That's been my biggest problem with current Legacy. Like, so many of the strategies that I gravitate towards are just, like, not good right now. And, like, if I had a GP to play, I would have to fucking play Rug Delver. Like, I would just have to do it. I would hate it. But, Phil like, says I would this, learn that and deck. then he would register Karuga Stompy. <laughs> <laughs> Can I introduce you to my lord and savior, Heliod? He has a hall. It's very generous. You can go there. And there are sharks. That's what I would play if there was a Grand Prix tomorrow. I would play sharks still. And you would have a blast. One way or another, it would be a good weekend. I would easily top 8 the GP and have a great time doing it. Well, Brian's pretty confident in himself. Alright, so hopefully everyone enjoyed this episode. And this has been the Internal Glory Podcast. Thank you for listening.